everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers who sit around, drink coffee or wine, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are John Schmidt, Chaz and Karen Brenchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 109, an interview with Cassandra Lane. Welcome, Cassandra. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. Really good. Um, Cassandra wrote uh, her first novel published as We Are Bridges, a memoir. And I just wanted to, I had been raving about it before you joined. I really love this. We have, we have chatted with other memoirists and, and I'm sorry, everybody, but so far you're kind of my favorite for the style of how you did it. Oh, thank you so much. That's so wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Now you, I was uh, looking just kind of a generally who you are for our listeners Um this book, you, it won the Louise Merriweather First Book Prize, and you are a managing editor of the L.A. Parent Magazine. I got uh, upgraded a little bit. <laughs> I'm, now the, I'm now the editor-in-chief as of January. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So it, it looks like you have been a reporter for a long time, and I, I love the journalists that come into this because there is a certain style and clarity and professionalism to the writing that it makes it easy. Did you, or do you find it that way? You know, I, I always say it was such a great, great training ground. Um, so I worked as a newspaper reporter for about 10 years after graduating journalism school, but I had been, you know, interning. I was the editor in chief of the campus newspaper. So I just feel like it's been a part of my entire adult life. Um, so even once I left the newsroom full time, I continued to freelance. Um, I wanted to go back. My deep, deep dream was to write creatively, to write books. So I did go back to school. I left the newsroom full time. Uh, but I was always able to use that training ground of being in the, in the newsroom to do, you know, side articles. It definitely helped with my creative writing. You know, I've, I've been working with editors since I was I don't know, 1920, uh, working on deadline. And I deeply just appreciate that background. I do. And I I loved a line that was very into the opening of your book that said you were a journalist that hates talking to people. (laughs) So thank you for talking to us today. And and help me unravel that a little bit, because there, there may be other people who think they want to follow your career, but maybe they're not so good socially. So what do they want to do? Right. Well, I talk a lot now, but as a kid, it wasn't that I hated, you know, people or talking to people. I just, I was so timid and just so afraid, I guess, of my own voice, Um, hadn't found who I was yet. So what I did was listen. I had siblings. I'm the oldest of five, but I loved hanging around my grandparents while my mom was, you know, working 30 miles away at her job. And I love just kind of snooping in on the adult conversations. Um, I love their cadences and rhythms and old (laughs) euphemisms. And so I think that because so my mom was worried, how are you going to go into journalism when you don't talk much? You don't talk to people. Uh, But I loved people and I loved their stories and just their psychological makeup. And so I think that's what drew me to journalism as the kind of the practical side of writing. And I thought, oh, I'll write my books on the side at night or whatever. Um, So, yeah, I think it's just that I was just so timid. Um, And that skill helped me, the skill of listening helped me in the newsroom because I would meet all of these people from all walks of life. And I guess I exuded, there was something that came from me that um, they felt was 
interested in them and they just spilled their stories into my ears and they went into my, you know, notebook and tape recorder. Uh, so, and it, and, and eventually I started talking more as I gained my confidence and came into who I am. <laughs> um, one of the ways that someone who hasn't purchased or read your book, Bad Me, can get into your writing is your wonderful Instagram posts, which is not normally a place I expect to find writers, especially not as evocative as you are. And I, at what point did your listening turn into your wonderful storytelling style? So thank you so much. That's such a compliment. You know, I just hear things. Um, I hear things. I see things. And Instagram to me is like a great place for that. So it's just, it's for first of all, just a wonderful pastime, or you could call it a, a distraction. <laughs> so I love taking pictures. I love journaling. And I think my cell phone has allowed me to kind of journal with, you know, my camera when I'm out. I love exploring the city, whether it's my own city or another city. Um, and when I come back and I'm looking at my phone, um, I think about whatever that image, you know, conjures up for me, whether it's a story of what actually happened or it's a, an image, you know, that kind of inspires a, a line of poetry. Or a, um, So yeah, I just think that that's a way for me to communicate that feels very comfortable. Um, and Instagram is a, a fun place to do that on. So do you think that um, the Instagram, how did you move from Instagram to writing your book? And it occurred to me, no one has actually given the title of the book or anything about the book. Um, so if you, you might want to mention that too. Oh, I have so much. <laughs> but please, yes. So the title of my book is We Are Bridges, a memoir. It's published by the Feminist Press. It was published just in April, uh, the week of my birthday. It was super exciting. It's not exciting. Yes. And I have been working on, yeah, I was working on this book way before social media. <laughs> I first started the first seeds of this book, I would say around 2002, while I was in my MFA program, uh, 2001, 2002. And I've worked on it, you know, on and off uh, over these last almost 20 years now. And um, by the time I joined social media, which I was, according to my friends, kind of late doing that, I think I joined around, joined Facebook around 2009, 2010. Uh, the book already had a life of its own. Of its own. Um, and then when I joined Instagram a couple of years ago, I was, you know, still really deep into the writing. And I think those those outlets are just really fun. Um, just a fun break away from the heaviness of writing, especially the topics that I was writing about. Um, we Are Bridges looks at the lynching of my great grandfather uh, in right. 1904. And it kind of weaves in and out of the past that domestic terrorism that happened to my family, looking at the impact of that on the generations to follow. And it weaves that story with my contemporary story of becoming a mother. I was going to say, I, I really loved that you talked about to listening to what is said and not said and retracted when you talk to people. Mm. And I did read your book and I loved it because Thanks. I, you know, there's some people that say it's brutal, but it's not brutal. It is real. So if you're triggered by talk about lynching or abortion or, frankly, 
any of the truths of women, including abuse and daily emotional, physical, whatever abuse in a family situation, especially for Black women in America, it might be a challenging read, but it is definitely stories that need to be told because we are all of us victims or products or both of our family past. And I loved when you talked about how the interaction between the, the parents color how a child's expectations of relationships and life in the world are going to be. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I'm just so interested in, I'm drawn to that. Someone asked me the other day, you know, (laughs) was it hard? And I said, yes, it was hard, but there's something within my psychological makeup that's just drawn to peeling back those layers. Um, just a literary, you know, form of archaeology um, and digging into that just so that I can understand myself better, so that I can understand the people around me um, better. And I, I started seeing those patterns. I like finding patterns, connecting patterns, connecting dots. And uh, that's really what this book is all about. My mom said uh, she's read it. She's listened on Audible. And, you know, of course, there were things in there that I'm sure were hard for her, but she's super proud. She understands why I needed to write this book. And she said, when I finished, I said, my daughter really had all of these stored up memories. And that's what this is. Uh, a collection of all these stored up memories, or whether they were my own or historical memories, imagined, you know, histories um, of my ancestors. And I love the way you take each of these memories and you talk about how the past colors them mm-hmm. and your thoughts around them and the emotions that wrapped into them. It, it struck me that if, if an unexamined life is not worth living, yours is beautifully examined. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And I also, I even enjoyed just that you used the title, both Bridges is a family name, and it's an imagery of, it's the past and the future, it's bridges across barriers, it's bridges across, you know, how did you go from being a young woman who didn't want children and had an abortion to an older woman who decided, well, maybe I will have a baby. And the challenges, there's a lot of people that don't understand the pressures both to and for and against for women, all women in America. Both from the religious point of view, oh, you can't, to I like the way they talked about, you know, sex outside marriage isn't a sin until a baby's coming. As long as there's no there's no evidence that that rocked me. That was her line. That's that is a political truth. Mm -hmm. And men are behaving badly out there in the world until a baby holds them account. And then they try to switch and say, well, it's the woman's fault. Yeah, I watched my mother go through that in church and it was so painful. It was so painful. And so in my, in my young mind, I associated, you know, child rearing with just such baggage and poverty and judgment so that I, I can understand why I decided not to have children at such a young age. And plus being the eldest and being a girl and having all that responsibility on my shoulders, I was like, I just want to be free. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. We watch our mothers struggle and we're like, I... I want an easier life. I mean, I respect the amazing thing your mom must have gone through, but I understand that when you were a young woman, it was like, I don't want to suffer that way. I want to go a different path. Yes, yes. yes. That's powerful. My um, my older brother and I, neither of us had kids. And it's not, my mother was a wonderful mother, but she was a single mother. Mm. And um, And it's like, I just, you know, I love other people's children. Yes. And I just love them. 
Yeah. <laughs> I know. I love kids too. And I loved kids then. I would always have kids when I was in my early twenties coming by the house every day. So, and I would teach summer uh, school, summer camps. So it wasn't bad. I just thought, Oh, I'll just be that, you know, that auntie. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I'm doing. And I, and it works. It's great. And, yeah. and then, and then they have kids, so I get, you know, different, you know, different ages, and, and yeah. it, it works. But I, I love the term I read the other day, a vodka aunt. That'll be me. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I, I've talked to so many kids about, okay, here's how when you do something wrong, here's how to mitigate your parental reaction. You broke your mom's favorite lamp, you should clean the house and get the lawn mowed before she gets home so she walks in to clean happy environment that makes her relax and then you can make up a beautiful story about how you're so sorry and you tried to fix it but you just bumped into it by accident rather than yeah we were totally playing football in the living room (laughs) (laughs) I love it see kids need all of these voices in their village and not everyone needs to be a parent themselves to to be a part of the village yes I love it agreed and I thought it was very powerful that you talked about examples within different parts of your family and your community when parents didn't really show affection to each other in public and the effect that can have on kids because patterns of behavior modeled for kids creates what is expected in a relationship in life and family. And that's what family means. We don't hug or, Oh my God, we hug all the time. And you expect that whatever you experience as a child colors you and you think that's what's normal. Yes, absolutely. So to have that, the absence, to see the, to experience the absence of that, but also to read my mom's romance novels where there was so much, you know, desire and physical touch. And I was just very confused. (laughs) And I was wanting that, what I read between the covers of her romance novels while I was sneaking and reading them. Um, And so I just had this kind of idealized notion of what love and romance were um in so many ways the book to me it's it weaves all of those themes romance race broken romance and marriage racism together because that those are things that i'm obsessed it is absolutely i think you know we can talk about how disney and romance novels create a very unrealistic expectation for young girls about what life and relationships are like Mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah speaking of teaching um, I'd like to ask you, your experience teaching writing, how does that inform your writing, if you have any comments on that? Yes, I loved it so much. So I love teenagers. And now I have my own teenager. He just turned 14. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. I taught high school um, full time for about five years here in Los Angeles. Wow. Respect. Yeah. Sorry, just... <laughs> Absolute respect. And I taught in uh, Highland Park, uh, if you know anything about the neighborhoods. Yeah, and then here in South Central. Um, Kids brought so many, so many first riches and beauty with them, but also some of the challenges um, that they and their families were going through. And being from a small town in Louisiana, um, you know, a lot of that was new to me on the one hand, but also many of my students were uh, black and brown students. So I was able to connect to them on this whole other level. Uh, and I loved one school that I taught at that's actually not far from the house that my 
husband and I ended up buying, um, where we were able to have more say in the curriculum and the books that were chosen. I didn't, while I was in school, read any books by any Black writers. I didn't know about Toni Morrison. And, you know, you would think that I... (laughs) That it was so long ago, but this was me, you know, going to school in the 80s. I didn't get introduced to those authors until I was in my sophomore year of college. Um, We were discussing how people don't talk about how Alexandra Dumas was Black. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, if if you're not taught in the schools, you know, you have to find out much later. And I I was so, my mind was blown when I first took that African-American literature class. Um, so I brought, uh, you know, my own uh, writer self to my students, to the classroom, and I should sometimes, you know, would share what I did and sometimes share a chapter or something. And then we, I just loved, you know, reading the stories and plays with them, dissecting the stories with them. We did a lot of Socratic seminars. Uh, we would watch, you know, films in some cases where there was a you know, book that had been turned into a film, for instance, Raisin in the Sun, um, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, it was just such, Fences was another fun, fun, fun book to teach. Um, and just having the kids write personally about their, their lives um, as it related to, as they related to the themes in some of those books was always such a powerful um, experience. And there's nothing like teaching a book as a writer that helps you. I just think it expands your own uh, vision for your own writing um, as opposed to just reading it by yourself. Agreed. And it's how you think about a book because sometimes we just sort of, we, we drink books and we let them wash over us and then we go on to the next one so quickly without saying, what does this say about things? What is the, what is the subtext of, of we, we talked to another woman who her family history was all of the kids in England sitting outside the pub all day, you know, feet in the gutter waiting for their parents to come out. Mm, wow. You know, and these are, you know, somewhere in between toddlers and 13. So that's a, that's a wide range. And that was just what you did. And nobody thought it was strange. Okay. And reading her book, I thought I kept thinking about mental health and how far we have come. And yours brought less of that because yours was a little bit more of, look, this is what happened. And it became a, a weight of responsibility. And do we hold men responsible enough? Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Good point. And there was a geek fallacy that brought me up in, in yours. I remember one of the famous geek fallacies is that being a member of one oppressed minority does not equate to sympathy for other groups or even subgroups of your own minority. Yes. Yes. That actually was, that's something that, you know, and I just kind of touched on that in the book. Um, and <laughs> a friend and I were talking about, you know, I think, how did she phrase it? Injuries between POC. Um and they can be, you know, mental and, mental and intellectual injuries, um, emotional. Um, but I, I, I think that you're referring to one instance where I talk about how a Filipino writer is trying to discourage me from writing about race. I, I was even more thinking of just in terms of the, I, I'm a big dismantle the patriarchy gal, so I'll be clear <laughs> on that. <laughs> okay, I love it. Go ahead. But, but just thinking about here, it's like, so you think of, well, you are a black man and you have yeah. been oppressed throughout history here. Why are you not more uplifting to black women? Yes, yes, that is a huge one. And I would say <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I had to pare down because, you know, I love I love my uh, grandfather and my uncles. I had seven uncles. Um, yeah. We're all gone now. And this is on the maternal side. Um, but they caused a lot of pain uh, to the women in my family. And I pared a lot of that down. So I just kind of touch on it because I know that it, I knew that that was going to be super sensitive for family members. But at the same time, I could not, I didn't want to write a book that just pointed the finger out at the big society, America. That's yeah. definitely a part of it. And America has a, a lot of stuff to answer to. But I also wanted to look at, well, how did that, how does that oppression you know, just keep repeating itself. How does it get echoed within our families? Um, And so I was looking at my one family as an example. And sure enough, there's been a lot of great positive feedback that I've gotten. But sure enough, there is at least one relative who is enraged um, that I even mentioned that there had been incest in the family. Um, And so I've had to deal with that. But I I just, I don't regret it because I know, I'm sorry that it triggered that in her. Um, And I know that there's this whole, you know, don't air dirty laundry. Uh, I love what Ashley C. Ford, who just published somebody's daughter a memoir, said, uh, someone told her, you didn't put the dirt on the laundry. And so it's like becomes this reverse guilt where you're supposed to be you're supposed to be made guilty for even mentioning that something happened to you or in your family. Um, and, and this relative's argument was that, you know, my mentioning that there was incest was not my place because it wasn't my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, yes, but that father's son broke into my house in my bedroom to try to lure my sister outside. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> and, it's like it's saying because, you know, it, you can only talk about it if you're the victim doesn't make sense either, because if you're a victim, it's like, oh, but we don't talk about that. Oh, you know, know, they've if they said, oh, I'm gosh, I'm so sorry, forgive me. And you forgive them because they're a relative that you're never supposed to mention again without saying, you know, I want I think it is important. And I wish every human being on the planet understood that the people that are most likely to abuse girls and children are their own relatives yes, or friends of the family. Or it's not the stranger in the van and the candy that they really need to worry about. And so I think it's important to tell these stories. And I love that you did. Yeah. And the thing is when, um, so my mother died a couple of years ago and I went back to, she's from Tyler, Texas. And we went back to the home area mm-hmm. and, and I got in touch with a bunch of relatives and so on. And a whole bunch of things. I found out a whole bunch of things talking to my mother's cousins about the family that had been, that had been invisible to me before. And also, we totally ignored one bit of the family because the one of the cousins there was a was a child molester, and I know that because I was one of the child children he tried to molest. Oh and there's all of these, like you said, these stories that we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And I was suddenly finding out more of them than I'd ever heard before. I found out why my grandfather died. He shot himself because he'd gone broke when the depression started, and it's just all these things. I see what you mean. I see what you mean with, with you're just not supposed to know. And then, you know, you yeah. know. Yeah. And it's devastating. I found out about another uncle just as the book was about to be published, who was my absolute favorite 
uncle who's kind of stood in as my adopted father, even though he didn't know I had him in that yeah. in my imagination in that way. But I found out um, that he had raped his daughter. Um, in his first mini- and I was broken. And it doesn't matter that it happened decades ago. This is no. someone that I held up on a pedestal. This is someone who was a spiritual leader uh, in the family and in the community. And I cried for a month. Um, wow. So, and I understand, you know, I understand in our, in the black community, the sentiment that, you know, there's, we've gone through so much as a people, why air dirty laundry on, on, on anyone, because they've, they've been through so much. Um, there are stereotypes out there already. We don't want to uphold any, any stereotypes. Um, so I understand that on the one hand, but again, I just think that if we continue, I'm a mother now, I have a son. I do need my son to know the truth, the beauty of his family as well, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. Um, and so that's that's my motivation to try to dig at the truth, to share it with him, hopefully generations to come, so that they can at least know, I'm not saying that they're going to be perfect, but but at least know what's in my bloodline and what I have a choice of, you know, keeping and discarding. <laughs> Every day, good behavior is a choice. Yes. Every day. Yes. And so all you can do is, you, I suppose you look at the kid and say, hey, make good choices again today, all right? Right. And right. provide them the examples that allow them to see that bad choices were made and yet can be recovered from. Speaking of covering things, what do you plan to cover next? What What is the next writing you're looking to publish? <laughs> well, I have my day job of being an editor and always working with writers and writing myself, but I am trying to steal some more time away to work on uh, my next project, um, which is all about reclaiming um, through through natural medicine, through reconnecting with the earth. Um, and this is kind of, this was inspired by my grandmother, my mother's mother, who I uh, just remember this bottle of liquid that she used to keep. And it was always kind of, seemed like it was hidden, this dark amber liquid with this curled root in it. Um, and it was, a, it was snake root. Um, and according to my mom, she and my great grandmother were ridiculed for, you know, keeping these old remedies. They were called, I don't know, they were accused of, you know, witchcraft. And um, I just want to look at what was lost um, as we, you know, became more religious, um, what was lost in our connection to the earth, um, and how can we reclaim that knowledge? Um, and so I've just been, I've been playing around with that and I have a lot of research too. I love it. And, you know, they say, if you really want something done, you should definitely give it to a busy person. So <laughs> I am that. <laughs> I entirely believe in you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so, so everybody out there listening, we are Bridges, a memoir. Really go read it. I, I just want to keep pushing this book and also want to remind everybody you should go read it. And then comment on it and recommend it, or even if you hate it, because every book that gets at least 50 reviews, it gets pushed up a little bit higher in the algorithm. So, mm-hmm. yes, thank you so much for that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I'm going to say, I, I love this, and this is real, and I would love to see more. I'd like to see this in every genre. I would like to see the, re- the not brutal, but the 
passionate but deeply introspective realism that you bring into a memoir can go into anything. Yes, and absolutely. That I level think- of research that all of the people are real and flawed. And even I love your story that even your uncle heroes are flawed. Yes. And we ourselves as the as the main narrators are. Um, so I, again, I put the light on myself as well. And I just, I think it helps. I, you know, sometimes when you're going through something hard, um, especially if it's something that you've done, you can feel so isolated, so ashamed. Um, mm-hmm. So to read something where you, you know, because people often don't talk about these things, but to at least be able to read it and know that you're not alone. Um, exactly. That was, that was something that I wanted to do. To see your experience. I mean, I am the funny thing we have a backwards is I kind of grew up in the Belinda La Mirada. And then briefly, I went to a semester in school over in Arkansas. So I, I spent a lot of my life being a minority, even though I was white, yes. so living in different communities. And yet your book struck me strongly as every single one of these challenges, except for I don't have a relative that was lynched, but Every other piece of that, of the the men behaving badly and people behaving badly and expectations, and you talk about this and you don't, I think anybody can relate to that. Yes, absolutely. And a group, a book club just read it. um, One of the recent book clubs, um, the response was that they they really related to the because it's a book club of all, they're all immigrants um, from so many different cu- countries. And I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I didn't immigrate to another country, but I, it was kind of, Louisiana is kind of like its own country. Um, <laughs> I can see so, that. <laughs> they really loved the migration story of leaving Louisiana behind for the first time at 30 years old and moving to Los Angeles um, and being separated wow. from that land and trying to find, you know, make my life here. So that for them really touched home. So there are folks that don't understand that Louisiana has their own system of law, which is based on Napoleonic code rather than Anglo-Saxon law. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yes. own, they, if they could be at their own country, they would, I believe it. <laughs> I, I think you might be right. But anyway, I wanted to say the final, your, your prose is beautiful. Your writing is a very easy to read. It draws them in. So I wanted to say congratulations on your first book and I think we want you to have more of them. Oh, yay. Thank you. I need that. I, I hope I do. I hope I do. <laughs> Let's get started today. <laughs> exactly. Thank you all so much. I was going to say, is there in parting, is there anything you want to recommend to new writers and people starting out? You know, I love the revision process. And uh, of course, you have to have something on the page before you can get to revision. But there's one book that just carried me through this project other, you know, individual essays that I might write, and that is living with revision. Um, so it's, and it's about the spiritual, oh, oh gosh, I don't have it on. Elizabeth, and her last name is, is escaping me. But anyway, it's about the spiritual, she views um, revision as a spiritual practice. Um, Ooh, that's and, a new perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really zen-like experience, but it's not hokey, it's really... Uh, I love her writing, first of all, and so the way she goes into each chapter, and then at the end of each chapter, there are exercises for you to do. Mine is heavily dog-eared, but it just helped me just embrace the slowness, because I'm a very slow writer, but it, it, it helped me embrace that slow process of revision and looking again at 
a chapter and a paragraph and a sentence. Um, I, I think that helps you fall in love more with your work as opposed to trying to rush it. I love that phrase because I have to fall in love a little bit to go back and be doing revisions myself. So that's that's beautiful. Yeah, and you're not just staring at the blank page. I think if you, you know, can can get back into your work by revising, for me anyway, this works, revising the section, and then that just kind of gets me cranked up, my juices flowing to then go into a new section. Well, that's a lot to think about. And thank you for coming and talking with us today, Cassandra. We will put links to your book and and the other stories and interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love email. We answer email. If somebody wants to reach out to you and ask you a question, uh, can we uh, rely upon you to answer it for them? I'll relay them. Absolutely. And they can do that uh, at CassandraLane.net very easily. There's an email. Oh, fantastic. You make it easy. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. This was so awesome. I loved all your questions. Oh, thanks. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is always Jackal Design, who does wonderful t-shirts for any occasion, including our 100th episode. And hey, thanks for listening today. Mm -hmm.